0: start uh, on a personal note of this story of the prodigal son and also the book called The Prodigal God. i um, just talking about, for a moment about some of my, my family upbringing and, and uh, with my sisters. What I'm about to say, I, I asked permission um, to say. I, I talked to my sisters yesterday and said, hey, I'd like to, like to say something about our updoor up- years and, and they both consented, They so go ahead and said, say what you need to say, so this is my permission. Um, some of you know um, a little bit of my story, that I grew up in a very, very conservative church that was very socially rigid, um, and as a result of that, my understanding of faith that was formed into me was largely defined by what I shouldn't do, and most of what was emphasized that I shouldn't do fell along the lines of social taboos of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, Now, my older sister, last week I said she's eight years my senior, um, she seemed, from my perspective um, as the younger brother, she seemed to do pretty well with that. Um, She was what I would categorize, I don't think she sees herself this way, but she always looked to me like the white sheep of the family. Um, she did well at school. She never got reprimanded for bad grades. Me, that was that was my deal. Um, she seemed to always be compliant to my parents' wishes, at least from my vantage point. And uh, she didn't buck the system when my parents said you can't go to the prom, which you know nobody, of course, could go to the prom in my church because there was something near the impenitent sin that happened there. It was dancing, uh, but that was kind of her her scope. Um, My sister and I, we're we're separated by just over two years, um, so we grew up uh, together uh, very close. And I know that faces actually help connect. So here's a picture of me and my little sis. Um, I know it's hard to believe me with hair there, but... uh, (laughs) The interesting thing, I I saw this and um, I thought, you know, kids are so impressionable when they're young, and that is a, a, a picture of my sister that I cherish because she's so happy. She's so young, but I will tell you that um, my sister um, is not the white sheep of the family. I think she sees herself as the black sheep of the family. Um, she has a very independent spirit and she has a will of steel when she wants to do something, she does it. So she, she, oh. gray. My parents would say the same thing. So that was just kind of where we were. And, and so in our particular church culture, uh, because my little sister and I were a little bit outside of the box, we often felt judged. Um, I never heard this, but it went through my mind uh, of people saying, oh, there's, there's the two Decker kids. You know, because we're outside the box. Um, and sometimes, justifiably so, we were we were wrong. Um, but I still remember to this day the look. Now, it wasn't everybody in the church that did this, it was just a few. It really only takes a few to poison a family. But I still remember I could see it to this day, sitting in the wall, looking across the pew, just looking at this lady stare at me with condemned eyes. I'll never forget it. But I will tell you, as, as difficult and as painful as that may have been to me, because it was, a, it was kind of a setting where nobody acknowledged it, but people. Graded one another after who was morally superior and who was morally inferior. And that look told me where I where I stood. But my sister, it was far worse. Um, she felt that church was uh, a place of condemnation, a place of judgment. It was kind of a house of shame. And, and that attitude has had tragic results. Um, my sister will tell you that. Uh, the reason she will not step foot into church is because she felt judged when she was a kid. And so to this day, she doesn't She doesn't go to church. Now I know that that story can be replayed in a lot of different people's lives. There are probably a lot of people here in Fairfield who won't step foot in a church because they experienced that as a kid. Uh, the condemning, judging lies. Now I'll give you an upshot of this, is that my whole family, mom, dad, and two sisters are are also reading the product of God. And my sister told me, she says, Danny, I think I'm the younger brother. And I, I, you know, say, you know what, I think I'm both. So there are signs of healing going on. Somehow, along the way, we easily forget that Jesus we just sung last. Loved, came, lived, and died for she and perhaps um, that feeling of or that look of condemnation takes place as we become more religious or maybe it's an inadvertent side effect of trying to shore up a decaying culture by constantly pointing out to the media what's wrong in which case we once again are defined by what we stand against and not what we stand for that Jesus came for the sick. He came for the sick. He came for his lost sheep. And somehow to maintain the attitude of Christ in a church family that's able to love and be gracious and not have that condemning spirit about it. Well, that, of course, brings us to the prodigal story, um, the story of the prodigal son. We looked at the prodigal son last week and his sin, and really this part is part two, and if, if it sounds unbalanced, what I'm about to say then, then you need to go back and listen to part one, because they, they really complement each other. Um, uh, the first, or uh, the youngest son is really guilty of reprehensible sin, He wandered off the reservation, and he's done wrong, and the Bible would say that he has done wrong. But one thing about a, a, a prodigal is that usually he knows he's in a bad place. I mean, his sin is all around him. He, he doesn't have um, two tones to him. Um, he's he's wearing black wool and he's got a black heart. Um, but when it comes to the older brother, it seems as if he's the white sheep of the family. You know, everything is in place. Um, He'd be the one that's prized, the poster child of a, of a son. And yet, what's dangerous about it, perhaps even more dangerous than being the one who wanders off the Reservation, is that while on the outside he has white, fluffy, wooly curls, on the inside he has a twisted, dark heart, too. And he represents to us a different path of sin, um, which we're going to look at this morning, in hopes that if we happen to be... Walking down this path, or living on this path, that God would graciously bring us to repentance, and that perhaps by the grace of God, this church might be a place where my little sister would be welcomed. So here's the story again. I want to pick it up after um, the the son has um, came to his senses, and he's coming back to his father. This is the youngest. Verse 20 of chapter 15, and he, this is the prodigal one, the one who messed up, uh, he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer to be called your, worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his, on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field. Idea he was working. Strong work ethic, maybe. And he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant and he said to him your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound but he was angry and refused to go in his father came out and entreated him but he answered his father look These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitution, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you, you, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. I think that tim keller is absolutely right when he says that the top target audience of this particular parable were not the wayward off the reservation centers but it has implications but the main target audience were the religious people the ones who had well-manicured lives uh, the ones who were doing things with, from outward perspectives looked like they had everything together um, they were the ones who saw jesus consorting with and eating with collectors and sinners, the black sheep of the Jewish people, and they were offended, um, surprised, uh, scandalized, because he would consort with what they considered to be the black sheep. (coughs) So this is directed to the religious. It's directed to people, I think, like us. People who come to church, people who think that they're close to the Lord, but not necessarily. Because underneath this son who has served and who has worked well is, is this dark part, um, is something you might call, or many have noted or called or labeled, uh, self Now, we use that word so often in church that it almost has lost all traction. It doesn't penetrate, because nobody thinks of themselves as unrighteous. The dangerous thing, of course, is self-righteousness itself is a blindness. You can't see it. So it can be there, and you're not even aware of it, because it's hidden so much under the surface of, uh, quote-unquote, good life. So I really thought, you know, if if that really is a target audience, the righteous, the religious, who have well-manicured lives, um, and if at the heart of it is a sense of self-righteousness, then perhaps we ought to just dwell on what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to be self-righteous? What does it look like? And this particular story gives a rather vivid description of what it looks like. And I'm just going to kind of draw out two aspects of what we might call self-righteousness, or I'm going to call it the the older brother syndrome. Um, and we ought to be asking ourselves the question this morning. Is this me? Is this me? Because I don't want to be blind to it, and I, I hope you don't either. So one facet that comes to light in this particular story about um, these two sons, um, one aspect of the, the uh, older brother syndrome is simply this, that if you take a look at how he responds that the older brother syndrome is basically caused by a performance-based life. That's another way of saying, and we put it in religious categories, of it's a performance-based sense of righteousness. Now, righteousness is one of those ambiguous words, but basically, in terms of a self uh, a performance-based righteousness, really, every human being who's alive and who thinks um has something as the foundation of what makes them important. It makes them feel a sense of value. Something to hang their identity on. Everyone has it, everyone does. You can't survive long without a sense of where yourself, what makes you you, the foundation of who you are. Now, in a performance-based life, Basically, what makes you who you are, what gives you a sense of worth and value, is how well you perform in life. Now, that can be in any arena, financially, morally, educationally, um, but you tie your sense of self to how well you do. Now, that's precisely what the older brother does here, because you can sense his performance base. Um, in his conversation with his father. I'm going to read this again. He was angry about something, which we'll come back to in a moment, and he refused to go in. So now he's separated from brother and father. And his father came out and treated him, and he answered, look, these many years I have served you and have never disobeyed your command. Let me me just reread that with special emphasis. I have served you. (coughs) and never disobeyed your man. The two operative verbs of this, this expression, and it's really an accusation, is that he has served and he's never disobeyed. Now those two words in the proper context are amazing words. If, if, if those two words could be applied to our children, those of you who have children, we'd think, wow, we're doing really well as parents. They serve, and they never disobey. So, again, if what he's saying is true, then this older brother really is the poster child's son. If this was your son or daughter, you'd want to parade them up on stage here and have them tell the congregation how much they've done for Jesus. Serving and obeying he immediately points to the fact that he has conformed himself to his father's standard and will. He has performed well. That's what he does. It's the of operation. That tells us that there can be people in the church who serve, teach, and let's not stop, let's just not limit it to what happens in the church. There are people who Go out in the community and they choose not to lie. You choose to do well at your business. Um, You endeavor to be a good father, good mother. And yet, what you're essentially doing is building your life on your accomplishments. And I'll tell you, that is and tragedies that we can do. It, it, it malfunctions in a couple of ways in life. Personally and relationally. If on a personal level if your life is performance based it is it's what makes you feel good about you is, is, is what you do, how well you've done it, your moral progress and advancement, how well you're respected in the community, how much money you have, whatever it is. Then it will do one of two things personally for you. It will either make you feel arrogant when you're doing well or it will make you feel extremely insecure when you're not doing well. Uh, When things are firing and and you feel good about yourself and your heart's at rest, well then you'll kind of have a smugness about you like I'm feeling like I'm in a good place. If you're a performance-based person, but if things go down, which inevitably they do because we're humans, and things fluctuate, and things, you, you aren't at the top of your game, or you don't make the grade or the rank, or in the competition you lose, well then you feel displaced, a sense of dislocation, like you don't belong anymore. And you start to question, what makes me worthy of love? Because we have adopted a subtle, performance-based, work-based uh, foundation of life. It's what gives us meaning, a sense of arrival. Now, that's one of the personal things that, that can happen as a result of that. Now, I can tell you for personal example that I have experienced, one of the ways that I I know that I have experienced that subtle slide into that is because when things are taken away, I feel hopelessly insecure. You know, if I, I was a, I was a good musician in high school. I was a horn player. And that is not a statement of boast, it is a fact. I was good. Um, I won't say great, because that probably would be a boast. But, you know, I always uh, sat first chair in my section. And when I auditioned for honor band in the local area in Northern California, I auditioned, I was accepted, and I was I was sat in the first chair. In other words, I was on top of my game. Um, when it came to the competition, I was top dog. And that felt pretty dang good. But then my, my instructor said, you need to try out for... Uh, Cal State Auto Band, which is all of California, and California is a lot bigger than, you know, Connecticut. So here you have this big fish in a very small pond in Northern California, all of a sudden swimming in a very big pond. And I tried out, I barely made it, and I sat third or fourth chair. And I remember to this day what it felt like. I started to question, wow, I'm really not a good musician. I really don't stack up. And I felt insecure because I had inadvertently and unconsciously adopted my performance as a musician as one of the things that makes me worth something. And when I did well and sat in first chair position, I tended to look down on others. And when I didn't, well, then I tended to look with contempt at those who were better than me. One of the ways you can tell, these are little signs of, of when you're drifting into a performance-based foundation of life, is typically people who, who are, are leading on their own works or how well they do with advancements are, are, are highly defensive when they are criticized because you're picking apart what gives them a sense of importance. Or on the other side, if, if you feel hopelessly insecure because what you have trusted in has been taken away, well then you'll start to uh, speak critically of the people who are better than you because again, your foundation is your performance. And that's one of the ways it malfunctions that way of approach of life. That's the older brother approach. Um, another way it malfunctions, of course, is relationally. Uh, because uh, as you see in the story, If you adopt your accomplishments, your moral advancements as what gives you a sense of importance and so forth, you will inevitably and invariably compare yourself to other people with judgments rendered. I'm better than this person? It's it's inevitable. If that's the basis of life, if that's the path a person takes, how well I do determines how well I think about myself. Then it will create a judgmental spirit in you. Me. Just will, and that will rust relationships. Rust apart. You sense that right here in in what he he says. It's like he compares himself to his brother. I served you and I never disobeyed. Now he's stacking up his life and then he goes on, flips it, and starts talking about his brother. He says, when this son of yours, can't even bring himself to call him my brother, as if it's his father's fault that he had the son, but when this son of yours came, who devoured your property and prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf around. Comparison. Because he was basing his life on simply this. How well he had done and created in him the judgmental spirit, the condemning spirit. That is what you would call the older brother syndrome of performance-based living. I wonder how many in here have unconsciously adopted that. What makes you, one of the questions you asks is, what are the times that I feel most satisfied with is it standing in the shadow of the cross and reveling in the gospel truths that I am saved by grace and grace alone? Does that bring a sense of satisfaction and completion, or is it looking to things you've said, people that have liked you, um, little certificates on your wall, looking at your, your account balance, does that bring a sense of security? Does it make you feel satisfied or rest or peace? Because if so, perhaps you have inadvertently slid onto the same path as the older brother. A lot of people can use Christianity and serve for all the wrong reasons. I mean, come on, you go to church, click that off your list, you're like, I feel good about myself. Why? Because you perform the religious deed. It's really easy for a lot of older brothers to gravitate towards religion simply to feel better about themselves. It's a part of their accomplishment. That's why religion can't be quite dangerous. It can feed the performance-based path of life. Well, that's one aspect that comes out, I think, in this response. The second one has to do with motivation, and it's this. um, That the older brother syndrome is driven by mercenary love. Now, the, the mercenary is something we use all the time, but mercenary is defined by Webster's as um, one who serves merely for wages. They do what they do merely for wages. Uh, we, we talk about mercenary soldiers. They're people who do not fight for the cause itself or the intrinsic cause of justice. They're willing to sell their gun or their knife um, and their services to the highest bidder. That is, and regardless of whether it's right or wrong, that's a mercenary that you, um, you work for, wages only. Now, some would say, well, that's not love. Well, yeah, you're right. Mercenary love isn't really love. But people often think of it that way. They treat each other that way. It's a kind of form of, of barbary. Is that, hey, listen, I'll serve. I will assist you. I will help you. I will be here for you. As long as there's something in it, but as soon as there's not something in it for me, I'm done. And that is precisely what you find in the story. It's, again, I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me. This is like a barbary. It's like, listen, I served, and I was here. I conformed to your standards. But then he turns it into an accusation, and you never gave me like you gave the little brother who doesn't deserve anything. That kind of reveals where his heart is. That he's serving his father only insofar as he feels like he's going to get something out of it. In other words, this older son really doesn't love the father for himself. He loves the father for what he can get. Which is why he walks out. Because he didn't get what he thought he deserved. That is a form of mercenary, bartering kind of love. If you don't meet the conditions that I want, or give me what I want, then it's done. And that's what he's doing. I will serve you as long as there is something for me in Turn. And that, too, is, is, uh, is a real question mark, isn't it? Because it gets down to the issue of motive. Why do we do what we do? That's a, that's a really important question. We tend to evaluate each other on the basis of performance anyway. You know, hey, well, my kids are doing great because they perform well. But what if their heart is in the wrong place? motive. why, why, Why am I a pastor? Why do I do what I do with my children and my wife? Why do you come here Sunday after Sunday? Why do you give? Why do you take care of your children? Why do you work the job you work? Why, 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 why? Is it because in the end you think that you're going to gain something in return? Uh, you look into your motivational life and it's a little bit like looking into the ghost world. I, I know, it's really difficult to, to really know what my motives are at any given point. They're like things, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, of course, they're, they're like things that you have to almost get a sense of indirectly. You know, like, you can't see the wind, but you can see the effect of the wind on the trees, and the leaves, and the grass. So when it comes to discerning motives, like, what are my motives? Why am I really doing this? You almost have to take a look at the indirect effects of how things affect your emotions, and And how it affects your speech to really get a sense, what are my motivations here? What happens when the immediate reward is taken away? How do you feel that? Or a personal example of failure on my part. Uh, Last week, um, my my wife takes my daughter Allie to cheer um, up in Vacaville, and they don't get back until 7.30. And I thought to myself, being the amazing husband that I am, um, I'm going to clean the entire kitchen and I will have the table set and food ready when she comes in. So I, I did it all. Yay. And then uh, she got there, and typically, uh, Deanna is a very, very appreciative person. She'd come in and go, Oh, thanks for doing the dishes. That's what you does. Only this time, she comes in and she didn't say anything. And I found myself kind of aggravated by that. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I was like, I could probably spend two hours, two and a half hours doing this if she didn't notice that I I did this. Not even a hey, thanks for making dinner. And I found myself aggravated. And as soon as, well, later on, you know, after being aggravated, like, I can't believe she didn't, like, show some appreciation. (laughs) But no other man is doing this right now. (laughs) 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 Lucky enough (laughs) you know, I was mad, and later that night she said, hey, by the way, thank you. And immediately my heart was convicted because I saw in my emotion of agitation the need to be repaid for my service. I think there's a reason why Paul says, look carefully how you walk. You've got to kind of keep a tab on why you're doing what you're doing. Is it a bartering kind of service to God's people and, most importantly, to God himself? Or is, is something else? Because to me, the, the path of the Chronicle, the older brother in the Chronicle story, is one not of pleasure. If the younger brother was guilty of establishing life on the pursuit of pleasure, then the older brother made the mistake of basing his life on performance. And basing his whole life on how well he had done and with the motive of getting something in return, whether that's recognition or inheritance, whatever it is. And the reason why he is so offended, and the reason why the Pharisees are so offended by Jesus, why the white sheep are offended by Jesus' love for the not white sheep, is because to the person who lives on the basis of performance, with this kind of mercenary love that I need to have something in return, grace is offensive. Because it feels fundamentally unfair. Like fathers being unjust. I did all this, and you gave somebody who didn't deserve it everything. Listen, when, when, when grace hits the soul of a person who is walking the path of performance for the wrong reasons... It will be offensive and cause reaction. And i venture to say there are a lot of people like that in the church. They don't know it, but they're not consciously aware of it. You know, the whole idea that, that, I'm just going to be out there with this, the idea that a homosexual dying of AIDS in San Francisco who hears about Jesus and comes to authentic faith is given a place of honor at the table of Christ. Is devastating to some people's idea of Jesus and God. That's completely unfair. Meanwhile, somebody who's worked hard, benefited the community, raised funds, is turned away. That seems fundamentally unfair to the performance based person. You're not being fair. But you know the fact of the matter is, grace isn't fair, is it? At least not from the human vantage point. I mean, it's fair from God's vantage point because grace comes to us through the justice of the cross, so it is just. But it seems unfair because when God's gracious, he takes away the debt that we should have paid, death for sin, and then he gives us the innumerable blessings of what we don't deserve. So it is unfair. Grace is unfair from the human vantage point. And the whole... Jesus, turns that whole sense of fairness and um, a performance-based bartering kind of love upside down. He says, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And I'll tell you, the good news in that is, is that um, when the truth of God's unfair grace lands on the soul, penetrates like water into the soil. And its warm rays start to melt the cold heart. It does something profound. Because it begins to work in us the release, the relinquishing, the surrender of the slavery of a performance based life. That produces either arrogance over people or a sense of Insecurity on people. Because you know what the gospel declares? Is that Jesus performed on your behalf. The, The only perfect person who never had a bad thought, who was highly disciplined, who accomplished everything in the most unusual ways, he ran the race for me. He was the performer. And therefore my my sense, or the Christian sense, the gospel, is that now my worth and my important sense of belonging is no longer tied to what I've done or what I haven't done or what I did wrong. It's now tied to the fact that he lived perfectly for me, and in that I find my rest. That alone is his performance. That is so freeing to the soul to, to realize that is where it's at, that all the time. It's a His righteousness that counts, not my own, until we realize that, that really this foundation of the Christian life is not what we do, our performance, what we haven't done, what the bad things we've done, ultimately is the fact that we stand upon grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing performance. It's a gift, not a result of works. Aka accomplishments, doing good things, serving really hard, etc. and etc. So that no one can boast. That's what it is. You know, Paul walked the road of the older brother, the apostle Paul, same guy who wrote Romans, Philippians. He knew what it was like Hebrew, Hebrews and Pharisee. He had walked down that road. And he had attempted a performance-based life for all the wrong reasons. And yet he came to the glorious understanding that there's something better. And he said, I have suffered the loss of all that I may gain Christ um, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own not performance based righteousness but that which comes through faith the righteousness of Christ so you know for the Christian the, 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 there's a new basis of living and it's not your performance so the tendency to get defensive and, and Take other people. You know, we don't have to live that way anymore because you know we got a performer who already did it. Our horse already ran the race and won the race for us. And on the other hand, too, this thing called grace and also wins your heart to God Himself as the prize. That no longer does God become kind of a means to another end, but but in Christ um, we become increasingly satisfied not with what God can give, but who God is. So that the best part in life is simply drinking from the well of God's steadfast love and knowing you came for me. And then you start to live for him. You uh, find yourself compelled by the love of Christ to live. A new motivation is born. That's what grace does. That's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus came to do. Came to to, to rescue the sheep who didn't deserve anything. of course, in the story, the father also reaches out to the self-righteous. The older brother comes out, fights him in. But when that grace sinks in, I'll tell you, um, it starts to do a work of changing how we see others. We no longer see other people as the, well, he's the black sheep of the family. It creates in us a sense of humble uh, dependence of joy and uh, a compassion. You know, at the end of the day, regardless of what color the wool is on the outside, um, whether you're as a person who has a well manicured family life or you're completely a disaster, we're all black sheep. We're all black sheep. And yet, the Father says to those who So the people who have failed would come and they would sense that this is a house Just do your work in a clean house, clean the heart, and bring um, us back to the center, which is uh, your place. And, uh, help us to revel in that, be held by it, overjoyed by it, and sense of increase of our love.